the whole process of can we get to peace? Can we get to a interconnected sense where the goodness of you rises as I experience goodness and vice versa? Can we get to that space? We can only do it when we stop telling a dominion story where somebody is more important, where a resource is more important, where a thing is more important, an artifact is more important. Every religion on this planet has had a prohibition of idolatry for a really good reason. Because things, particularly when they start embodying essence or meaning, things distract us from reality. And if what we can do is access a place where we don't see ourselves as more important, but we see ourselves as inextricably linked to the importance of the whole, right? That's how I view my world. And that's, by the way, why I don't have a threshold of cool points before I'll talk to people. I don't have a minimum threshold of how many viewers you have to have. I don't do that because I live the world that I value. And the world I value says that Matt and Dave in this moment are emitting an energy and are sharing a life force that will have a field effect. I don't know what that field effect is going to be. You might not know what that field effect is going to be. But what I do know is that the intention of this communication is for the benefit of humanity. And as a result, we can, in this moment, beget that world of peace. Hello, this is Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan. Welcome to The Dr. E Show, a show exploring the frontiers of our human possibilities in areas like health and wellness, science and spirituality, quantum biology, and conscious living, so that together we can awaken the best of ourselves and create our most joyful and fulfilling lives. Recently, with all the changes happening in our world, many of us are asking some big questions and focusing our energies on envisioning a more beautiful world. I came across this great documentary that I recommend highly called Future Dreaming. Future Dreaming features a visionary pioneer by the name of Dr. David Martin. And our good friend Matt Belair invited David Martin on his podcast, and it was one of the most beautiful and mind-expanding conversations. So I want to thank both of them for allowing us to share that conversation with you today. Without further ado, please enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is a businessman, professor, author, storyteller, inventor, oracle, father, friend, and creator of the MCAM CNBC IQ 100 Index. He specializes in putting humanity back into humans and business. Creating real transformation from the inside out, he shows and teaches people how to be the difference that makes the difference. His secret of success globally is the wobble effect. The problem we see superficially is not the problem. He shows us how to identify the real issues and access our innate wisdom. We change from the inside out to do everything differently, look at everything differently, and bring humanity back into work and humans so we can fully live. Welcome to the show, David Martin. 
Matt, so great to be here. Thank you very much for hosting me. I appreciate it. I'm so grateful that you agreed so quickly. We were kind of discussing at the beginning. I was telling you, I was going down the rabbit hole and, uh, you know, it can be pretty dark. You know, you, you, ma you made a video about the CDC and what's going on in the world events. I've only become familiar with your work in literally the last week. And just seeing that hope, you know, of what, who you are and what you're doing and what you've done, I was like, yes, we have an awesome guy out there, super smart, and has been walking the path and really committed to making positive change on the planet. So immediately it made me feel good. So, uh, so glad to have you on the show. And I'd love for you to educate our audience on just who you are and, and what you've done a little bit in your life. And, and even for me as well, because of the little I know, it's just in, incredibly inspiring. Well, you know, Matt, many people look at what I've done and say that I've lived multiple lifetimes um, because to do the things that I've done, the, the businesses and the academics and, and all of the various things that have, have transpired throughout my life feels like multiple lifetimes to most people. But I tell them all the time, I just fully live. I live every day and my commitment to every day is start with gratitude for the day I have and then pour every ounce of my intellect, my body, my, my physical energy, my spiritual energy, my emotional energy into making sure that whatever the universe is invited into my day, I have taken on full tilt. My goal is to hit the pillow every night going, yep, I did everything I could do today. So that's kind of how I approach things. And, and so when I encounter any kind of perturbation in the universe, which is what this is. This is just a this is just a ripple in energy. When there's a ripple in energy, my goal is to say, I want to know who threw the stone into the pond, right? You know, what what's what's really going on? So I want to see not the ripples, because the ripples are interesting, but I really would love to get into the mind of who threw the rock. Understand what's going on there, understand what there was to gain or what there was to lose what positions in terms of, of instability were, were reified and made more strong through something, what positions were being potentially shaken and, and what incumbencies might get overturned. Those are all questions that I find terribly fascinating. And so about 30 years ago, um, in work that I did for both my own commercial interests, but ultimately for a number of entities, both in law enforcement and intelligence around the world, I developed a technology called linguistic genomics, which is an intent-based communication system that takes words, communication, text, audio, anything else, and it doesn't look for the meaning of a word. It doesn't look for the organization of word. It's not like a search engine. I often refer to it as the find engine, the difference that makes a difference. What's the difference between the signal that somebody is saying and the actual thing that they're trying to communicate? And that technology has manifested itself in a number of ways, as you read in the intro. We have been very involved with coming up with the indicators of both US and global economy. First, the CNBC IQ 100 index, now the official markers, the innovation alpha indexes that are reported by the United States Conference Board that measure the US and the global economy, those come out of our systems. Every single thing that we do takes the information that is available throughout the world. We currently operate in 168 countries. 
all that information we aggregate and we look for things that are normally occurring patterns. And then we also look for things that look like somebody's throwing a stone in the pond. You know, what's, what's the thing that's making the ripple? And what we've been doing in this particular coronavirus all the way since it started in China, our first response, most people don't know, but our first response anytime there's a perturbation is we immediately make available all information in the open source, meaning things that anybody can use, you know, whether it's treatments, whether it's, you know, interventions, whatever the thing is, everything that has happened in the world since the Indian water crisis back in the mid 2000s, when India wanted to get clean water to all of its citizens as a human right, ever since then, our organization, the minute trouble hits, we put into what's called the Global Innovation Commons all of the information that is available anywhere on the planet that can be used by anyone on the planet in the open source and public domain so that people can address whatever problem emerges. That's tsunami detection, that's you know, environmental issues, you know, when, when Eastern Europe had the toxic clouds of aluminum dust, we, we had we are on the ground with information immediately. So we've been involved in this coronavirus thing ever since the first report of the first illness in, in China. That's amazing. And I'd, I'd love to get into that. I'd also love for you to quickly speak on some of the other projects that you, you worked on. You share, I watched the one that you shared about the CDC and you know, sharing what you've been observing there and the information coming through. Because if you research this, um, the, the narrative from the mainstream media does not line up from all of the information that's available. And at the end of the video, you kind of said, hey, you know, if you haven't read the science and how many people this is, this is killing, what's actually going on? Like, stop you know, just shouting at me because what's happening now is there's this huge polarity where if you kind of go against the mainstream media, you're attacked because, yeah. you know, and they have names for that and things like that. But when you're really diving in, you're like, something doesn't feel right here. And you've worked on projects like this before and stood up against giants trying to create chaos for groups of people. And, and those are some pretty amazing projects and amazing wins you had. Well, listen, we, we, we took on some of the biggest ones. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the the, the most significant wins we have. When, when in September 18th, 2001, the anthrax scare happened in the United States, we immediately made available all of the public domain patents for the drug ciprofloxacin, which was a drug that was developed in large part to deal with all sorts of, of you know, antimicrobial kinds of things. But ciprofloxacin, which was held by Bayer and it's once again a patent that, that Bayer insisted that they held, but, but the patent they had was on a formulation of the drug, not on the drug itself. We helped emancipate that so that companies like CIPLA, the large Indian pharmaceutical company that's a generic pharmaceutical company, we immediately emancipated that information so that Bayer couldn't extort up to $7 a dose for the 300 million doses that the U.S. government ordered. Those were things that we were able to drop to 70 cents a dose. Why? Because we emancipated information. And by the way, at that moment in time, when everybody was fearful of the alleged anthrax scare that was allegedly gonna take us all out, we knew there was something wrong because we had picked up a big purchase by the US Army 
back in May when mysteriously the army started buying ciprofloxacin, which was a drug that they hadn't been buying for a long time. And suddenly they started buying millions of doses. And you sit there going, that's an anomaly. Pay attention. There's a ripple in the field. Pay attention to that thing. And what we did was having paid attention, we provided the information that was instrumental in lowering that price and making the world easily capable of accessing what was needed for that anthrax outbreak. Take another example. When the Prince of Liechtenstein, in collaboration with a Texas company, decided to patent basmati rice, and you heard what I just said, they tried to patent basmati rice. How ridiculous. Basmati rice has been available in the Indian subcontinent for the last 3,000 years. But the Prince of Liechtenstein and a Texas company decided to file a patent, effectively blockading the right of India to sell something that it's been trading for 3,000 years. We were the only ones to stand up on behalf of the Indian government and get that patent overturned. Those kinds of David and Goliath scale stories are the stuff of our life. And the thing that we find compelling is that behind every one of them is the, the, the cover story, right? Right now we're dealing with COVID-19. Well, what's COVID-19? COVID-19 is an unprecedented designation by the World Health Organization where they decided to name a set of symptoms, they decided to name a set of symptoms a disease. If you read the actual documents from the International Committee on the Taxonomy of Viruses, you find out that even when they were coming up with the, is SARS really SARS, or is this a new form of SARS, what is it? When they were debating that, they very clearly created a distinction between the virus, coronavirus, and COVID-19, the set of symptoms. Now, that was an unprecedented move. Why did they need to do that? And you have to ask a question. If somebody breaks their normal protocol, if somebody breaks their normal pattern, there's gotta be a reason for it. And not surprisingly, we started turning back the pages and before long you find that the researchers at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, the researchers at Wuhan Institute of Virology, all the way back in 2014, 15, and 16, were collaborating on making a coronavirus that had abnormal spike proteins, you've heard about spike proteins, and had abnormal receptor binding domains, specifically around the angiotensin converting enzyme, or ACE, receptor binding domain. Now, am I saying to you that they released something? No. I'm not saying anything about whether somebody did something nefarious. But what I am saying is that there's no surprise. There is no surprise when this information about increasing the virulence of a particular strain of viruses was known and documented and funded by the NIH, by Health and Human Services, by CDC. This was being done in 2014, 15, and 16, and we're supposed to believe that some novel thing happened in, in December of 2019 or in 2020. That is falsifiable by their own written admission. And the point of all of this is anytime you see economic interests, behavior interests, and all these things change, you just ask questions. 
And that line of questioning, as you know from my previous videos, took us all, all the way back to 2003 when the CDC illegally filed patents on the human transferability of coronavirus into humans. That patent was illegal in 2003 when they applied for it, and it's illegal ever since. But that allowed them to control the narrative so that none of us are capable of asking or answering a question without going through a gatekeeper. And when that gatekeeper decides to tell a story that smells a little fishy, you go back and you look and you go, I wonder what was in it for them. And the deeper you go down that rabbit hole, the more you find that every single person associated with this particular pandemic designation has a financial interest in getting federal funded research and getting pharmaceuticals or vaccines in the marketplace. And by, by that, I mean everybody. This is a financial transaction. Wow. Well, I've definitely come to the same conclusions, but I know that you've come to them with an even deeper level of research. And it's because of people like you sharing this information, I can figure it out by researching this because it's actually all public if you look it up. Absolutely. And it goes completely against the mainstream narrative. And so what I've been finding is people say, oh, conspiracy theorist or, or whatever, and they blanket it, but they don't look at any of the information. And thankfully, we have some people speaking up. If you look at Bruce Lipton and Dr. Buttar, like what they've done with their life, you know what I mean? Trying to give back, being good people, people of integrity, you know, and they're saying, hey, there's something a little bit off here with this narrative. And so how is it that we help educate the people when it's so polarized because they're set in this fear, you know, they have cognitive dissonance because you couldn't believe that somebody would do that. And really, when you're living your daily life, you can't imagine that somebody would conspire in such a way. They'd be like, that's crazy. How can you even say that? So from everything that you've looked at, you know, what information do you feel is most important and how do we begin to navigate those um, conversations to create a potential solution? Because when you, uh, you had a great TED talk that needs way more views, but you talk about how do we solve the unsolvable problems? Yeah. How, do we, how do we do that? And I, and I think it was such a brilliant talk. So I'd love you to kind of touch on all those subjects if you can. Yeah, no problem. And, and let me start by expressing something that we do too little of, right? And that is gratitude. I'm deeply grateful that you're taking this time. And to the audience, whoever they may be now, whoever they may be down the road, I'm grateful that they're taking the time because it turns out that one of the greatest errors in how we have enculturated ourselves is we have moved from cerebral cognitive processing to reflexive processing. We've been conditioned to like or dislike. We've been conditioned to fan or not fan. We've been conditioned to be pro or anti, but we haven't been trained to think, to critically examine, to deeply dive in. We're more likely to binge watch five hours of a TV show than spend an hour wondering why our liberties are being trampled. And then we wonder why our liberties are being trampled. And you sit there going, well, hold on a minute. How much time did you spend reading the Constitution? How much time did you spend reading the information that came out in January and February around the debate on whether or not this really was in fact a whole new species or even a subspecies or a clade of virus. The, the problem is we have decided for whatever reasons, and I'm not gonna get into all of the motivations, but it's important to realize we are responsible for our own reflexive ignorance. 
if we get trapped in stories where it's all about, I like you, I don't like you, this is a conspiracy, it's not a conspiracy, whatever it is, that's on us. At the end of the day, we've made choices. We've allocated our life force and our energy to either ask or not ask questions. So let's start by the gratitude. Thanks for having this moment because this is opening the aperture for us to sit and have a conversation and think. Now, what can the normal person do? How did we get here and what can the normal person do? The answer is really simple. We are unaware of the level of questions we can ask. And I have found this universally in the 30 plus years of working in conflict regions around the world, from Nicaragua and Costa Rica during the Iran-Contra scandal all the way forward, which is when I got started in doing this kind of stuff. The, the, the problem is we have convinced ourselves that somebody who we perceive to be an authority either has our interests so we don't ask, or is too big to question so we don't ask. My central message is, you're wrong. There's nobody too much in authority to question. And there is no concept, there is no topic, as much as Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to promote the idea that a little information is dangerous, it might be but it might be dangerous only if you become dogmatic about that little bit of information. The goal is to take some information, equip yourself and dig deeper and dig deeper. So when it comes to finding white collar crime, which we did for the United States Treasury for many years, where large corporations were defrauding the federal government of billions of dollars of tax revenue, and my organization led by me actually bringing cases on behalf of the treasury against some of America's largest corporations, little old me against the Goliaths of giant industry, we're getting in front of three judge tax panels in Delaware and other places around the country. And I was arguing the case for the treasury. Now, am I qualified to do that? Well, let me tell you this. The first time I walked in front of a three judge panel in a courtroom in Delaware, I did not feel qualified. And the defense for a company that had defrauded hundreds of millions of dollars in the United States government was, this guy, Dave Martin, isn't qualified. Here's the point. I never represented myself as qualified. I merely represented myself as capable of disclosing a series of facts which happened to be the criminal activities of the company. And their defense was, we don't like him. That was their defense. Guess what happened? The three judge panel ruled in favor of my argument and actually increased the damages because basically the defense of this large corporation was we don't like the messenger. He's not a lawyer. He's not an attorney. He's not a tax expert, whatever. If your defense is tear down the messenger, then what you know is that the message is right. And that is a hallmark, Matt, of every single one of these scandals. Every single one of these is if the defenses shoot the messenger, then you know the message has to be a lie. And it's worth pursuing in every instance because knowing that you can stand up for your own gut feelings, 
knowing that you can stand up for your own intellect, as you and I discussed before the show started, knowing you can stand up saying, I want my kids to live in a better world, knowing that you can do that equips you to be able to stand when the chips go down. And I'm telling you what, this is one of the most great moments to be alive because this is a moment to reclaim our intellects, our critical thinking, and our sovereignty as human beings. And that's a great opportunity that most of us have not considered. Wow. You definitely made a lot of really great points. And I love how you phrase the idea of just, you know, if you're shooting the messenger, it's a great, it's a great analogy because that seems to be what's happening here. And what I'd love to ask is some people are seeing this as the great awakening, quote unquote, right? An opportunity. And I, and I absolutely believe that it's not what happens to us in our life. It's how we respond to what happens to us in our life that creates who we are. And this is an opportunity for humanity to respond, maybe even as a collective for the first time beyond religions, borders, countries, and languages to respond as a global humanity. I would love to see that as a picture. And I'm curious, what do you think is the most important thing to focus on now? Because when you go down these rabbit holes, really dark stuff, for me, part of that awakening was just being aware of some of the awful stuff you didn't know existed. But I love your approach because, you know, I was conflicted in looking at the coronavirus stuff. It took me a while to start posting. I was like, I don't want to spread fear. But if there's something happening, we need to be aware about it so we can change it. So when 9.1 million people die each year of starvation, I'm like, why is that happening? You know what I mean? We must have enough resources to feed them rice. There must be something going on. And so I love how you balance that like awareness of what, what is dark and there's, there is a problem you know, but not bending to that problem and figuring out a way to find a solution. So I'm curious if you wanted to speak a high level about like what you see going on here and what we might be able to do about it. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is a very tired trait of our current level of civilization, and this goes to your question of awakening, is that there seems to be this kind of postmodern new agey idea that somehow identifying the perpetrator and outing the perpetrator is some sort of beneficial and advantageous thing to do. Like if we can just find the bad guy and, and, and take our anger and our energy out on the bad guy, somehow or another we'll, we'll, we'll somehow be better off. You know, if, if we find Osama bin Laden and we publicly execute him on, primetime television at 10 o'clock at night, somehow we're, we're going to galvanize our national interest, right? These kind of concepts are very perverse because it turns out that the idea that there is a bad guy or there is a perpetrator is a very convenient made-for-TV kind of construct. It's, it's wonderful for sensationalism. But it overlooks the underlying system level issue where the individual is in fact representative of a system level problem. And and I like to look at Bill Gates this way, right? Bill Gates occupied years of the Justice Department by leveraging the Microsoft monopoly. Antitrust laws he was willing to run roughshod over collusion laws 
totally willing to run roughshod over. Bill Gates got to be the multi-hundred billion, roughly hundred billion or whatever hundred billions he has. He got there by steamrolling a system that allegedly tried to hold him accountable, right? We all remember the antitrust days of the Microsoft cases. But at some point, somebody rolled over, right? Bill Gates is the beneficiary of a system that rewarded behavior. And the system that rewarded behavior was a group of corrupt politicians and procurement agencies and others who did the wink, wink, nod, nod. We're going to look the other way. We're going to slap your wrist for a couple hundred million bucks over here. But oh, by the way, make sure that we can get access to data. Build holes and access points in your operating systems so that surveillance can happen. Do all sorts of other things. And before long, the unholy alliance, which Bill Gates is the figure in, so I'm not exonerating him, but if you think that Bill Gates is the epicenter, you're missing the point because he is representative as an agent and as a front of a system that's much larger and much more insidious. He was not held accountable by the Department of Justice. What he did do was negotiate with a government that was willing to say, we're going to make a public rep reprimand, but by the way, we're gonna make sure that you keep getting government contracts, you keep getting preferential contracting situations across not only domestic, but international government contracts. We're gonna keep feeding you money but we're gonna do it under an agreement that says, make sure that you keep a back door open for what we want. So is Bill Gates a bad guy? Well, he's an expedient guy. He sees an opportunity and he knows how to take advantage of it. I'm just gonna put out for your viewers to consider that there are a lot of people at different scales who make that compromise. And what we often do is we mistakenly project an antisocial extreme of a behavior onto a single individual and it turns out that we're notoriously good at making evil guys to tear down, bad guys to lock up, or bad women to lock up. We're very good at this notion of a digital sense of good and bad justice or injustice, but we very seldom stop and reflect on what is the system that allows that individual to take the figurehead role for either the success or the failure that we're going to ultimately paint on them? Now, the reason this is important is to say that if we took Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates and Ralph Barrick and people at the World Health Organization, some of the researchers at, at the Wuhan Institute and the U.S. AMRIT at, at Fort Detrick, if we found all of them and we said, let's, as a public, descend on them en masse and let's lock them up, right? Let's throw away the key. We would have done nothing, nothing to disrupt the system that actually created those individuals. And that's my mission. My mission is to get into that inner portion of the big inertial mass and disrupt that system because the system that makes the Bill Gateses of the world, 
the system that makes the Anthony Fauci's, the system that puts people on pedestals so that you can either reveal or revile them. That system is a broken one because it relies on our life force to support the fallacy that it's about that individual rather than really deeply diving into the animating energy, the life force that's behind them. I'm far more interested in that than I am whoever the puppet is that gets hung out front. That's a really great point. And I wanted to ask the follow-up because I, in my own research of trying to figure out certain things going on in the planet, it did seem like the systems, um, you know, misleading people. You could look at the international banking systems. Um, then you could say, oh, it's the Rothschilds or Rockefellers, right? And you look at their quotes and what they've done over history, maybe not so positive. You look at the medical care system and looking, like even looking at this, I, I became familiar with germ theory versus terrain theory and Bouchamp yeah. versus Pasteur and Bouchamp just being an actual, you know, high level genius doctor, you know, promoting, you know, self uh, healing and all these amazing tools. But then, you know, Napoleon and whoever else comes in and, and kind of dismisses all that. And so when I look at these things and I see the systems being so powerful, you know, the media, for example, being owned by just a, a few people, um, looking at documentaries like Century of the Self and seeing how, you know, these powerful organizations understand human nature and use that against us in, in various ways. It to me, I remember just feeling so depressed in my early twenties. Yeah. How am I going to stand up to this system? Because you, when you say that example, it just reminds me of the mob boss, or you know, you take out that mob boss, and someone else is going to come up. Yeah. So how do we disrupt this system? And because obviously, with your research, you know, it's a systems problem. What can we do? Well, I think the first thing is to engage with conscious participation. I'll give you a very simple example. The number of people who tweeted about fine coney. I don't know if you remember that, but several years ago, there was a warlord in Africa and every, it, it turned out to be one of the first viral videos ever, which was this, find this warlord in Africa. This, this guy who was the uber bad guy. He was getting little kids into being soldiers and they were marauding villages and killing their family members and doing all sorts of things. And there was this whole, whole fine coney movement, fine coney movement. And I looked at that movement and I was like, well, hold on a minute. Isn't the whole of the, the Toyotas that he's always seen driving through the jungle and the, and the weapons that he has, those weren't charitable donations that he you know, picked up somewhere. He bought those. Somebody actually gave him money. And, and if you followed the story very far and looked at what was happening in the, the Congo and what was happening in a number of other parts of Central and, and South Central Africa, you, you found that there were a whole number of conflict metals that were really important to get into things like cell phones and smartphones and otherwise. And most people don't remember, but when in the period between 2008 and 2011, when Congress started instituting a number of reform bills in terms of how companies had to respond to a number of shareholder concerns, a number of electronics companies, including Apple, lobbied very aggressively not to have to disclose the origins of the metals that they were using. And I always found it amusing that my most ardent leftist, find Comey, let's be Coney, let's, let's find the bad guy, were tweeting about it and Facebook sharing and YouTube streaming sharing 
on the devices that actually held the medals that paid for the war that he was running. We don't see ourselves as connected to the whole, right? We don't see the, the 35 year old in South America mining lithium, who's dying by the way, of silicosis, a horrific lung disorder because the mining conditions for lithium mines are dreadful. We don't see that person dying. So when we get our lithium ion extended life battery, do we realize that the extended life of our battery costs somebody their actual life in a lithium mine? We don't ask the question. And here's the underlying problem. The underlying problem is if we want to make a difference, we have to start at a conscious, what I call all-in consequence analysis, right? And by the way, super important when we think about vaccinations and testing around this coronavirus situation, we may very well come up with an intervention and it may very well block the ACE receptor and somehow stop the coronavirus from getting into our cells. But do you think that anybody right now in Gilead Sciences or at Ridgeback Pharmaceuticals or J&J or Sanofi, do you think any of them are actually contemplating the long-term effect? Of course not. They're rushing to get to something that does one thing, but the fix is actually going to have unintended consequences. And if we jump on the bandwagon of we can reopen when everybody gets tested or everybody gets vaccinated, the truth is that we will have placed ourselves at the risk of the unintended consequence. These aren't mysteries. Remember, those great defoliants that were sprayed across Southeast Asia that became the household and the farming product roundup that is now in all of our food supply, right? That was safe, wasn't it? Well, we were told it was safe. And you know who told us that? Government experts told us it was safe. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Never telling us who paid for that determination. And now all of a sudden we find out not only is it not safe, but it's probably a cancer agent. The Center for Disease Control. Let's remember this. The CDC, that august agency that's looking out for our safety. The CDC promoted DDT the toxic chemical that killed the bald eagles and killed life forms across this country. That CDC had promotional pamphlets printed in the 1950s saying that you should use DDT in your houses and your kitchens because it was safe. This is the DDT that caused birth defects, that caused the eggs of bald eagles to fail to have appropriate hardness so that the bald eagle nearly went extinct, right? This is that CDC. What's the problem? The problem is in every one of these situations, we're not doing the all-in consequence analysis. We're not saying, is the solution tested for all of its field effects? And here's the thing. Each one of us has the opportunity as sovereign individuals, to your point, through this process of trying to awaken ourselves to at least consciousness, forget higher consciousness, let's at least get conscious, right? At the end of the day, that awakening only comes when we can do an all-in cost analysis. 
have we considered the effects of what we're doing, whether it's what we consume, whether it's what we put in our body, whether it's the activities in which we engage, have we considered the effect of that? And if our benefit, whatever the benefit is proposed, comes at the expense of someone else's life or livelihood or the environment or anything else, have we made the conscious decision that says, yeah, my extended life battery is worth a South American lithium miner dying at the age of 35? My point is very simple. My job isn't to tell you what is right or wrong. My job is to inform you of the question that you can ask before you participate. I'm not going to get on a soapbox and say you should or you shouldn't take a drug or get vaccinated or anything else. I'm not going to get on a soapbox. Do what you want to do. You want to wear a mask. You want to social distance. Do what you want to do. But your liberty to do what you want to do does not impinge on my liberty to do what I want to do. Because what I want to do is make conscious decisions informed by all the available facts. Yeah, absolutely. You made a lot of great points there. And I wanted to ask something that I was thinking about last time, and it has to do with the financial incentive. So you're speaking about Bill Gates, you know, using this system of being able to kind of bully it in a way. And it seems like money can go a long way. You know, uh, you the more money you have, the more you can influence anybody, especially if you've got that kind of money. And when it we look at large scale systems, it seems to be that money influences and, it, and allows negative agendas to move forward. And this is where people, when they go all the way down the rabbit hole to the international bankers and things like that, you're like, okay, maybe these people don't have our best interests at heart. How do you take over media systems? How do you take over yeah. companies? I think John Perkins, the person who wrote Confessions of an Economic yeah. Hitman and the corporatocracy and the Iraq story. And I was like, huh, interesting. And how they can go into you know different countries to, to basically cripple the country, take their resources. And so these are systems. And when, at least for me, if I look at that and find evidence as a holy, this is real. How the heck do I stop that? You know, is this, you know, sometimes I think about like this divine entity or ETs coming down and helping us, but you know, I don't like, you know, I feel like there's a danger to the savior story. And I like how you're yeah. always talking about active participation. And I feel like in the quote unquote conscious world or spiritual community, there's this bypass. And I'm like, they're like, Oh, you know, only think about the better world. I'm like, yeah, that's a part of it. But if we, you know, that wouldn't have worked for Martin Luther King. It wouldn't, it's not going to help that person that I know has an issue. I think it's that lack of compassion extended to all parts of the world, extended to the minor you spoke about, extended yeah. to Africa who's suffering from these things and saying, you know what, we need to be aware of, of the effects that other people are having. Yeah, so I am the worst person to ask this question to because, you know, you know they say that when you're in your teens and 20s, you're supposed to be really optimistic and then somewhere about 35, you're supposed to kind of go, oh crap, the system is really stacked against me. And by, by the time you hit 50, you're supposed to be resigned to the fact that you really are screwed and, and the lights are going out. Here's the problem. I'm 53. I'm in the best shape of my life. I have the most amazing wife and family that you could imagine. I have a beautiful home. I have a very interesting business that spans the globe. And 
I figured out something a very long time ago, which is that the illusion of hoarded wealth is an illusion. It's an idol, right? The reason why people look up to Bill Gates is somewhere in their head, they wish they won the lucky lottery, right? They wish they had been born to William Gates Sr. or whatever. You know what I never did? I never looked up to somebody because they had money. I look up to people because of their accomplishments. And I look up to people equally who have accomplished great things as well as people who have accomplished horrible things. Now, let me explain that. The system that we currently have, the thing that works for the 1% and doesn't work for the 99%. You know what? It was built to work for only 1%. It was built for that purpose. When Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, he built a system that wanted to consume the lives and livelihoods of most people for the benefit of a few. He actually said that. So guess what? It works. And when we sit there and go, well, this system isn't working, we're wrong. We need to understand for whom it's working. And we need to learn how they pulled it off right? The, the economic system works because we have been seduced by sirens into consuming just beyond our means. Buy the house that's a little too expensive, but that's okay. It's financed over 30 years and you'll figure it out. Max out your credit cards, but that's okay because you'll, you'll ultimately have a life insurance policy that pays whatever you didn't pay off, right? We've been trapped in this story, but we are trapping ourselves. Right? We are putting the shackles on ourselves. And it is up to us to take the shackles off. It's up to each one of us to say hoarded wealth only has the aspirational power we give it. Right? The reason why Warren Buffett, the reason why Bill Gates get to talk to people and get to listen to people and get to interact with people is because of their wealth. That's fine. But guess what? I've been able to influence more heads of state. I've been able to access, enter and exit and make an impact in more countries than they have. And not because of my money. As a matter of fact, in 1999, on my first trip to China, when the State Council of China said that they wanted to have me help advise them on their accession to the World Trade Organization, the point that they made was, I was the first senior American executive to show up there having flown commercial. You know what I do? I put my pants on one leg at a time. I don't have somebody putting my pants on for me. You know what else I do? I drive my own car and I ride my motorcycle. You know what else I do? I work out every day. And after this conversation, I'm going to go into the kitchen and I'm going to wash the dishes and I'm not going to have somebody do it for me. I live fully and it turns out that I have empirically proved with my life that you can accomplish more with integrity than you can with money. And I want that to settle into people, right? How did 500,000 people around the world suddenly find out about the CDC collusion with the National Institutes of Health and with NIH? 
IAID and with UNC Chapel Hill with Wuhan Institute of Virology? Was it because I paid a marketing firm to get me in front of 500,000 people? No. It's because integrity is in short supply. And if you have a voice that is filled with integrity, that allows people to formulate their own opinion, where you're not dogmatic, you're not telling somebody how to think, you're telling people how to access the inventory of information so that they can think. It turns out that that very core distinction lands you in a place that no money can buy. So I'm gonna give you a really simple axiom that 53 years in has made me one of the cockiest, most confident people I know. And that's not a good thing. I'm sure there are a lot of people who go, what an arrogant guy. But let me just say this. I am not cocky and arrogant because of some sort of fantasy about my life. I am cocky and confident because I have actually put wins on the board when I was told I couldn't. And I was told that the reason why I couldn't was because I didn't have the money to do it. You know what? It didn't take money. It took integrity. That's very beautifully said. I absolutely agree with the integrity piece in my own life and observing people trying to do positive things for the planet. A lot of people fell short because they didn't get the financial reward that they wanted. And a lot of people will go, you know, even podcasting, for instance, or going a YouTube channel or whatever. They're like, yeah, how did, you know, how do you make a living? And I was like, I don't know, you know, but it's something that, you know, I want to do because I'm inspired to do it. So, you know, it's a, it's a great gift for me to have conversations like this. And my only intention was let's find great people who want to share and do good things to hopefully inspire other people to do good things in their own way. And that doesn't require money. And in a lot of the, the coaching I've done, you know, I, I studied a lot of like positive psychology, law of attraction, how to get what you want. And it's always about money. Right. And it's so fascinating that so many people like couldn't really think about what they want to be on the money. So if I said, you know, if you had unlimited money, what would you do? And I've taken people through this uh, hypnosis process a lot because our mind is conditioned to keep us alive. That's his number one thing is keep us alive. For us to be alive, we need money. Um, so money goes, buys us food, right? And so if you ask like, what's your dream? What would you want to do? What would you want to change? How would you want to impact? If you can't draw that line to money, you distort it in some way because you don't want to die. Well, when you're hypnotized into your heart, you get honest answers. And in this process, I've done it for people who are multimillionaires, for uh, everything in between shape of life. And what has come back is always simple things. Good yeah. people, good family, a little yeah. bit of nature, doing what they love, being around, um, inspiring people, making an impact. Yeah. Everybody the same. But what's also interesting at the exact same time is that when I've either conversed or talked to people that aren't doing it, there's always some level of money that they need. If, they're, if they don't have that, that much money, it's like, ah, you know, I need to get to like 50, 60 grand, then I can do it. Oh, you know, you know, I've met with people that like the guy's making like 500 grand a year. He's like, you know, just need a couple million. Then I can go do to the thing I right. want. And I'm just like, it's always some other thing when you can go right to the source with your own integrity. And you're correct, I think, when I observe um, the world that is in short supply. And on that note... It makes me think about 
you know, speaking to some of my Native American teachers, they would say, you know, on the other side, when we're trying to fight for the rights for water and land, the only difference is the other side is getting a paycheck yeah. and they're holding weapons. And so the other day I saw a Marine, a video of a Marine talking to all the people, you know, on the protesters and just- It's a great video. Yeah, great calling video. out their integrity. And, yeah. you know, I feel like this is a checkpoint for humanity. Who do you want to be? Yeah. You know, what type of person are you? And, and, and herein lies the, that, that really core issue because, you know, one of the things that I love about also being 53 is I have the ability to have one thing that has never been a space where I've had to compromise. I don't have to explain why I was in a place I shouldn't have been. The reason is because I've lived this way my whole life. I don't have the secret that you're going to pop out of a closet and hold over my head. And that absence of the secret means I can remember what I said because all I have to do is recall what I did. I don't have to do something else. I don't have to be beholden to another master. And I think this is a beautiful moment in time where to your point earlier in the conversation, what is the awakening? The awakening is really to say, yes, as a collective, we've had our butts kicked by the suspension of liberty. Has it been legal? No. Have I given evidence to violations of the Constitution? Have I given evidence to the violations of antitrust laws? Is there evidence of gross abuses that have materially harmed millions of people across this country and around the world? Absolutely. But this is a moment where we get to decide who we are going to be. Are we going to be a mob seeking vengeance? Or are we gonna realize that all of this was taking place while we were sleeping? We weren't paying attention. We didn't pay attention in 2012 when coronavirus showed up in the Middle East. We didn't pay attention. We didn't ask the question, why did DARPA start funding coronavirus research? And why did University of North Carolina start doing gain-of-function research in 2014, 2015, going through 2016? Why did they do that despite the fact that the National Institutes of Health said that there was a concern about the morality and ethics of what they were doing? Did any of us, did any of us stand up at that moment and say, well, I should know what this is about? I should figure out what is it that's going on that the NIH has suddenly decided in public to say, we don't think that might be ethical or appropriate. We were sleeping. So it's on us to realize that each one of the blocks of the foundation of the COVID scandal was being laid in public. And most of us were sleeping. And I think most of our anger comes from that fact. I think most of our anger comes from the fact that we've been had. We've been caught asleep. And to your earlier point, my extreme desire through interactions like this is to say, let's stay awake, right? This is going on. But while this is going on, $3 trillion is being artificially manufactured by the government. And that $3 trillion is not coming to us as individuals. 
That $3 trillion is coming to prop up financial institutions that got propped up a few years ago and seem to be in need of propping up again. Somebody should be asking that question. That's a while we're sleeping thing. We're distracted over here with coronavirus and COVID-19. We're paying no attention to the fact that trillions of dollars, which ultimately are going to be paid by us, are being manufactured. That should concern somebody. That should concern everybody. But right now, we've convinced ourselves that that's really uh, two trillion, three trillion when our, our brains can't even process, right? No. We have an obligation to be informed. We have an obligation to understand. And if we're really going to ever experience the awakening you're talking about, that awakening is dependent on information and education, not from an expert, but from our own inquiry in information that is in fact publicly available. Absolutely. And when you're speaking there, I was reminded of the quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Couldn't be a better quote. Yeah. And it, you know, I feel like this is an opportunity for everyone to stay awake. And it's such a good point because if you look at the world and the way that it's been run and you look at any history book, it's not like you, it's something you'd be super proud of, you know, if like it was your, your baby, you're like, what the heck is going on? Like, this is craziness. What are you, what are you doing? You're supposed to be an intelligent civilization and you're literally massacring each other to get bigger toys. When you're a child, you know that you shouldn't club that other child uh, to take his toy and you know not to hate them because they have a different color or a different belief or a different background. You know that because you're born good. You're born a good person, but we need to be indoctrinated into this crap to then create an enemy, to create fear and fear limits your pattern recognition, does all kinds of things. So you can't make compassionate choices, right? You know, you have a, you have an example of, you know, approaching this, uh, you know, deadly man and shaking his hand and, and being able to do that. And I've had a similar experiences in my life and it's, you know, through trust, you know, in yourself, your own integrity, as you, you said, and probably also like a higher benevolent force, you know, as well, because you're like, Hey, I have to like give, I'm not running all of this show. No. You know, there is a greater thing. Like I'll go beyond this, but I'm definitely not in control of all of this, but I can intend and I can be a part of it. And when, we look at the world that we're in. If it were to just keep going, if there are no coronavirus, people would just stay asleep for yeah. as long as the system allowed, forever yeah. and ever and ever. So we can respond to this and make this an absolutely phenomenal thing for humanity, but it's going to be rough because people are losing their jobs. Um, you talked about freedom of information. Censorship is way up. People are nervous of forced vaccines. And it's almost like what's happening externally is going to keep clamping down until you finally look at it and say, Hey guys, let's come together and figure out something better. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you think about using this as, as an opportunity to respond as a global humanity? And, and do you see peace? I know you've worked on conflict. How do we get to a humanity um, that is actually hundred percent peaceful? I use the example of team earth. You know, if we were invited to the intergalactic Olympics, no one would invite us because we're, you know, angry teenagers. But what, what if we look down and 
we were a civilization that cooperated and we don't need government entities to do this. We no. need integrity. You know, the engineers from China, Korea, Canada, USA, Sweden, they can start to work together. You know, that's what's needed, but we use this money as a separation to prevent us from doing what's right and good. So my simple answer is that we have harmed ourselves through a very ancient story of dominion. Our notion of humanity, our notion of the human race is that somehow because of our stories that we tell from our mythic pasts, our creation stories, whatever, whatever narrative we have, we place ourselves in a very ethnocentric story where we are the arbiters of what happens. We are in dominion over. And as long as we tell that story, and this goes back to the, the bigger question of the narrative, right? We, we currently live in an industrial chemical biochemical narrative. That is a story. And I'm not telling you that it's true or false. It is a language and it is a story. It is not the only language and it is not the only story. It is a way of narrating the world. I often have said, Watson and Crick didn't invent DNA and didn't discover DNA. What they did was they defiled chromosomes because nature doesn't do things in strands. Nature does things entangled. If we say we understand DNA or RNA, we do not understand anything because we have defiled the essence by which nature weaves the pattern. And so that's not surprisingly the reason why people say most of DNA is junk. That's like saying that most of a pile of thread left at the bottom of tapestry is junk because you untied all the knots. Of course it's junk. It's a pile of thread. It's not a piece of art. The piece of art is the entanglement. Now, here's the, here's the point of all of that. The point is that each one of us has the ability to say that at every moment in time, we can stay entangled with all of the bits and pieces that are around us. We can stay connected. We can have this conversation. And this conversation can arise out of something as simple as you send me an email. I say, hey, let's talk. You say, great, let's do it this time. And we, we have that happen, right? We don't have to live in a world where I, because of what I've accomplished in the world or because of the field effect I've had, somehow have to go, you know, Matt, I, I, I really need to know whether it's worth my time. If the only people having the conversation right now are you and me, it's worth my time, right? The whole process of can we get to peace, can we get to a interconnected sense where the goodness of you rises as I experience goodness and vice versa. Can we get to that space? We can only do it when we stop telling a dominion story where somebody is more important, where a resource is more important, where a thing is more important, an artifact is more important. Every religion on this planet has had a prohibition of idolatry for a really good reason. Because things, particularly when they start embodying essence or meaning, things distract us from reality. 
And if what we can do is access a place where we don't see ourselves as more important, but we see ourselves as inextricably linked to the importance of the whole, right? That's how I view my world. And that's, by the way, why I don't have a threshold of cool points before I'll talk to people. I don't have a minimum threshold of how many viewers you have to have. I don't do that because I live the world that I value. And the world I value says that Matt and Dave in this moment are emitting an energy and are sharing a life force that will have a field effect. I don't know what that field effect is going to be. You might not know what that field effect is going to be. But what I do know is that the intention of this communication is for the benefit of humanity. And as a result, we can, in this moment, beget that world of peace because we take away the sense of dominion. You know, I'm not cuter. You're younger. You got beard that I can't ever even imagine growing. Thank God we're both bald so that we at least got that going together. But man, and you've got vibrancy and you've got vitality and you've got really cool graphics behind you. And, and I've got an old bookshelf made out of church pews. Like, you know, but, but the point is, there's not a better or worse. We are two human beings entangled in this moment, creating the tapestry of life. And the minute we can take that view, we can build the peace between each other. And we can also start building peace back with the natural ecosystem, right? Where we're not fighting viruses. We're recognizing that a virus may or may not show up and it may or may not challenge and test our immune system. But you know what? I am not the virus. I'm me. I'm encountering energies all the time. Some of those energies I encounter do me harm. Some of those do me good. At the end of the day, my job is to keep my intentions on focusing on how I can contribute to a better humanity. And that's what I'm about. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the frame of entanglement because there's a lot of great research on consciousness and how, you know, we are entangled through consciousness and just our very fact of being here. And I feel like the opposite side of the spectrum is what people are feeling right now, which is fear and yeah. loneliness and we're in isolation and people are losing their jobs and all of this stuff is happening and that diminishes hope. And as I went down the rabbit hole, as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, I was looking at these powerful systems of immense influence and just kind of losing hope. And, you know, I was like, where, where are the people that are going to stand up to this? You know, where are the people that are going to stand up for what's right and for what's good and for what's true? and build something that's better. And I think that, that we have that opportunity now. Yeah. And so what would you suggest? You know, I, I feel like too, part of this, like I've looked at some of the numbers of what's going to happen in the world and potential food shortages in other countries that don't have the resources. I'm luckily okay right now, barely. Yeah. I know a friend of mine who, who messaged me said, thanks for what you're sharing because I, I have one daughter and another one on the way and I'm going to lose my house. I, I can't go to work. Um, and when you're in that state of fear and literally survival, can you share a message to those people um, and how you might help them um, with some sort of frame? Because it's, it's a, it's a very dark and, and challenging space to be in. Yeah. I think one of the things that I have done, and it, it, this is something that if people look at my blogs over the last many, many years at inverted alchemy, 
Um, one of the things I talk about is, is how do we access a space in which we get very clear on three thresholds. The first threshold is what is our existence, right? What is the things that we actually are in fact directly in need of? And then we get into the second threshold of what are the nice to haves? And then we get into the third threshold of what are the things that we aspire to, right? Those are three different thresholds. And one of my Buddhist friends in China that I spent about seven years working with said that when you can collapse those into only wanting that which you need, you have actually found life. In other words, let's just take, for example, the house I'm sitting in right now. This house, which is a home for me, has variously since it was built in 2005 been the home for somewhere between 40 and 50 people. I don't see it as my home. I see it as a house. Turns out my wife and I have a bedroom right over there. And upstairs we have three bedrooms and downstairs we have a bedroom and we've got big fluffy beanbag chairs that usually have teenagers sprawled across it or, or guests or whatever else. The reason I'm saying this is I am absolutely sympathetic to your friend and, and all of the people who are struggling right now. But I'm going to tell you what I do. What I do is, as I've said many times, I build a web of connection. I build a web of connection that says that I want my house to be a shelter for those without. I want my table to be a table to feed those without. And rather than doing that in times of crisis, I maintain the discipline of doing that so that when I have anybody in my ecosystem that finds themselves in need, the need gets erased. The need gets erased because I have a network that knows that if things get tight, they can probably come here and they can live here for six months or they can live here for a year. Now that's how I've practiced my life. And like I said, this home has sheltered probably between 50 and 60 people from anywhere from a couple days to months to a couple of years. I've defined my family as the people who sit around my table at night. I've defined my friends as the people that I fellowship with, whoever those people are. And I think that that's the real clear message that we need to break through to everybody right now, which is there is a table that has food. There is shelter. And we have been sold allegedly an American dream that was sold to us in the 40s and 50s that says there has to be your car in every garage. There has to be your chicken in every pot. And it's time for us as Americans to realize that if we have a chicken, then we should have a potluck, right? If we have a house, we should have people over, right? The, the issue is, this is a moment for every American to do the right thing, which is to remember to be a neighbor, right? Don't let somebody suffer in silence. Don't let somebody suffer without food or shelter, right? 
And by the way, I'm not preaching it. I live it on my watch, whether it is the person who's sitting at the corner of the freeway that I have to drive past when I come in from town back out to my house. There is an extra sandwich in my fridge. And that doesn't take a coronavirus. That doesn't take a catastrophe. That takes humanity. And the call for all of us is to say, start practicing it now, right? Who knows what else is going to hit us, right? But we need to stretch the muscle of being a neighbor. We need to stretch the muscle of being kind. We need to stretch the muscle of being generous. There is not a single person in this country that should or could be without. If any of us embrace the humanity of saying that we are stewards of what we have, we are not owners and hoarders of what we have. That's how I live. That's how I've lived every day. And that's how I'm going to keep living because the America and the world I want to live in is an America and a world where that doesn't sound strange. Amazing. That was so beautifully said. It really echoes a podcast I did a few weeks back with uh, Zuni elder Clifford Mahoudi and uh, David Lombert Senapas. And Clifford Mahoudi was talking about the spiritual teachings that he was taught from his elders. And they were all very basic, common sense things. And, you know, one of them was respecting your friends, respecting your family, respecting your parents and your elders, respecting the land. And as he went through this list, I imagine society, and it's like, as a society, we don't do any of those things. Literally not one of those things are we actually doing. And they constantly speak of extending your compassion and actually doing something. You know, when you see somebody that needs help, actually give them a dollar or give them a sandwich and don't judge them for who they are. They need help. And and, and you, and a lot of people want to be spiritual or, you know, kinder quote unquote conscious, but they're going to a meditation, but they go past the people that are asking for help because they've made this immediate judgment. Yep. And, you know, again, I think it comes back to that. What, what you've been speaking about is the integrity. You know, are, do you have integrity when the cameras are on or someone's watching? Or do you live with integrity always? Do you live with kindness and compassion always? And, you know, going to certain festivals and things like that, I, I kind of noticed that when people had their makeup on perfect and they look great and they're going out to the, the crystal singing bowls, they're super full of integrity and kindness, but then they get all rattled and the makeup's all messed up and they're having a rough day. And all of a sudden, you know, they're not as kind as they were and, and, um, or if they're not getting the recognition. And I feel like that comes as a result of the conditioning. And like you said, the American dream or, you know, wanting to, I don't know, just be the most important one rather than just being helpful. Yeah. You know, and we have that opportunity now. So um, I really love what you said. And I want to I wanna honor your time. I know we're going a little bit late here. Um, is there anything that you wish that I had asked you? Or is there anything that you would uh, like to share before we close it out? Listen, I am deeply grateful that you've taken this time. I'm deeply grateful that you're sharing this. I'm deeply grateful the community that will ultimately experience this conversation. and. What I know is that as long as I have breath, you know, the things that I say and the things that I advocate and the way in which I live is going to be a persistent and generative gift. And I am deeply grateful that you've made this moment happen. And I look forward to future conversations because there is a world that is still to unfold before us. You're 
soon-to-be second child is going to live in a beautiful world if we set that as our objective. Thankfully, I have three lovely kids who are living in a beautiful world. And every moment of every day, I'm committed to making sure that that beauty shines. So thank you very much. And I look forward to chatting again. I really appreciate that. I, thank you so much for the work that you've done and committing to living a life of integrity. If you look at, uh, you know, just your resume and what you've done, it's, it's really amazing to see what you're doing and how you're committing to that. And especially in times like this, it's just another expression of who you are and what you want to do. And I feel like a lot of amazing people have answered that call and are sticking their necks out there. And some people are doing it for the first time. And for those people, I honor and respect them because it's really challenging, especially when, you know, a lot of people, you know, your, your website inverted alchemy, that's kind of what's happening. And we're, we're in this inverse world. We think it's one way, but it's not at all. And it's a tough yeah. pill to swallow having the courage to just share the truth because it actually is the truth, you know, and then you know that. And, and one side is with integrity with yourself and your own truth and your own honesty and just doing your best. And in doing that, you can only share it and let people take it or leave it. So I appreciate what you're doing. Um, where can people find more about you and, and your videos and all the work that you're going to be doing? Cause I know you're putting out a lot of great information right now. Yeah, so everything can be accessed through my website, davidmartin.world. That's an easy place to find a common portal for everything. Navigating it is a little bit complex because there's a lot there. If you want to find the YouTube content, it's up on a channel, David Martin World on YouTube. Um, I do Facebook Live events once a week on Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and I am, as people will find if they, they look for me on online, they'll see me on CNBC or Bloomberg or all over the place. I'm, I'm kind of the same guy no matter where you find me. So um, I encourage people to reach out. I try to communicate with as many people as possible. As you found out, I answer my own emails. <laughs> and uh, I do my best to make sure that I live the humanity that I talk about. Amazing. Well, I definitely encourage everybody, if they're not familiar with your work, to check out your videos, to check out your work, to support how you can and, and to, you know, really take this message to heart because there's a lot of great gems in there. So thank yeah, you so and, much. And for... one last thing I'd point out, just on, a, on a, a broader philosophical basis, if you really want to dive into the way I think, spend an hour and on my website or on YouTube, look up Future Dreaming. It was a film produced by Kaifin Layson, uh, shot in Antarctica in 2015. It's a beautiful film and it gives you 55 minutes of kind of the big way in how I see the world. So when you choose between watching a, a next edition of God knows what, Tiger King or whatever, um, take 55 minutes and watch Future Dreaming and then see if that sounds like a humanity that you'd like to be a part of. Oh, amazing. I, I can't wait to watch it. You know, I just actually had Joe Martino on from Collective Evolution and we were speaking about the most amazing narrative beyond what's being given to us for humanity. And imagination is that starting point. And if we yeah. can imagine and collaborate together, that's all that's necessary. There is such an agenda for keeping our attention focused on terrible narratives, terrible outcomes. And yeah. so we need to unplug from that step in and then imagine something better and then actually do something. It, you know, it, it sounds simple and it is simple, but what is different is it, it requires participation. And so exactly right. thank you so much, man. This has been a pleasure. It's my honor. Thank you very much. 
Hi friends, did you love that interview? If you did, please leave a review and share with all your friends so that many more people can benefit from these game-changing insights. You can also go onto our website, dredithubuntu.com, and subscribe to our newsletter, where you'll receive free trainings and next-level ninja tools that we only share on our newsletter. Together, let's turn your life into a brilliant masterpiece.